The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, we've been working through the the book of Romans, and today we come to to chapter 4. We're going to spend two weeks on chapter 4, and then we'll set Romans aside for a little bit. So in in two weeks, we begin our Advent series, which is going to be on joy. Uh, And then after the first of the year, we'll be diving into a topical series on the church. And then after that, uh, Lord willing, we'll come back to Romans, picking up in Romans chapter 5. But in this section of Romans here, we're dealing with the doctrine of justification, all right, and, and justification is a super important doctrine for us as Christians to understand. In fact, nobody understands Christianity who doesn't understand this doctrine. Okay? John Calvin, one of the most important leaders of the Protestant Reformation, called it the hinge on which religion turns. He meant Christianity by that. It's the hinge upon which Christianity turns. He said, unless you grasp this foundationally, you'll have no foundation at all. Martin Luther and other reformers, this is the doctrine which Luther famously said, it's the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth, right? Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That was Luther, you know? And Luther called it the chief and the chiefest doctrine, I love that, chiefest. I'm going to try to work that into my vocab this week, you know, chiefest. He even said, if you lose this doctrine, you lose Christianity. It's that important. Now, last week, Pastor Adam gave us a fantastic definition of justification from the old Baptist catechism from the late 17th century, which is built upon the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Let's look at that again. And since it's a catechism question, let's let's actually read this out loud together. Okay, question 37 of Keech's catechism, what is justification? And then together, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. All right, now break that down a little bit, okay? It's dense, but this is a fantastic definition, all right? Justification is an act of God's free grace, meaning we don't earn it, deserve it, or have any right to it, do we? Secondly, justification involves the pardoning of all our sins, You and I and every human being who has ever uh, lived or ever will live between the time period, uh, in between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, right? we have a sin problem and therefore a judgment problem and therefore a wrath problem, which is indeed an eternal wrath problem. But when we are justified, all those problems are solved. We are therefore, once justified, next phrase now, accepted as righteous in the sight of God. We're going to come back to that. But we are accepted as righteous only for or because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. A very, very important word, imputed. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes here. But we are accepted as righteous because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and received by faith alone. This definition 
is worthy of you writing down and meditating on, if not for the rest of the month, perhaps just the rest of your life. It's that good. Now, last week, Adam said we can sum this up by the phrase, sinners made righteous. Okay, but I want to clarify something here. And, and Adam and I talked about this. He, he knows I'm going to say it, but it's, it's, it's really important, I think, to say this. Justification is not about sinners made righteous. It's about sinners counted righteous. Let me say that again. Justification is not about sinners made righteous. It's about sinners counted righteous. I know that might not sound like a huge deal. I know that might sound like we're splitting hairs, but it is a big deal. This isn't the splitting of hairs. It was actually the splitting of the church and the Protestant Reformation. So if you're a a note taker, you know, maybe you you jotted down last week that that heading from the slides, sinners made righteous. I I just want to kindly ask you this morning, not to take away from anything Adam taught last week, I want to kindly ask you to cross off the word made and write in the word counted. That's the word that we're going to see in the text today. It's used 10 times in chapter 4. It's a small but crucial change. And, and, and listen, changing that doesn't take away from anything Adam said. He nailed the text last week, all right? Talking about the, this righteousness that is ours in Christ and how it is a, a foreign righteousness and a gifted righteousness and a just righteousness and a passive righteousness. All that is absolutely spot on and true. In fact, if you weren't here last week, I want to strongly, strongly encourage you to go find that sermon on our website or our podcast and listen to it. It was incredible. It was incredible. But I don't want us to miss this point. Justification is not about sinners made righteous. It's about sinners counted righteous. That'll become more and more clear to us this morning, I believe, as we dig in here to the first half of Romans chapter 4, because the first half of Romans chapter 4 is all about how justification works, how it works. Now listen, if you, if you are here or joining us online and you're, you're not a Christian, or if you're younger, you're trying to figure all this out, right, it might feel like we are jumping into the deep end this morning, and maybe you just came to kind of put a toe in the water. Uh, But listen, you couldn't have come on a better week. This is the bread and butter of the good news that we are so excited about around here. If you're not a Christian, this doctrine, out of all the doctrines, is one we really want you to know. It's foundational, remember? Without it, there is no foundation. And for Christians in the room, this right here, this doctrine, is the whole reason and the only reason that any one of us will ever make it into heaven one day. So we better understand how it works. Let's start at the beginning. Romans 4, verse 1. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now the the basic question here is, is about Abraham. And how was it exactly that Abraham became so favored by God? How was it that he became right with God? How was it that he was justified? Was he justified by works? If so, he'd have something to boast about, wouldn't he? See, if Abraham or you or me somehow make ourselves right before God, if we are able through some series or sequence of actions, works, and practices to justify ourselves, well, then we got something to boast about, don't we? Look at me. (laughs) Look what I've done. We'd be able to say that or think that, you know, boy, I've made it. I've made it. We'd be like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. We'd be able to stand and pray, Dear God, thank you that I am not like the rest of the morons in the world. Thank you that I'm not a sinner like them. 
Remember that in Luke 18? But is that how Abraham was justified? Is is that how he was counted right, having favor with God and becoming the father of Israel? Well, in some ways, Paul's already answered this question. He's already said all, including Abraham, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why not before God is there at the end of verse 2. No one can boast before God. Everyone's sinful. But here he takes another angle on this question. He essentially is answering the same question. But this time, the focus is very squarely on how justification works. Not just for Abraham, we'll see, but for all of us. So how was Abraham justified? Was Abraham justified by works? Is is that how justification works? Verse 3, well, what does the scripture say? And I want us to pause here for a second and consider the significance of and the importance of this seemingly easy-to-pass-over question. What does the Scripture say? That's always a good question to ask, isn't it? Someone wants to talk theology? What does the Scripture say? Someone wants to talk about how we're to live as Christians in the world? What does the Scripture say? How we're to treat one another and relate to one another as Christians? What does the scripture say? How do we know that we're sinners? How do we know that we need Jesus' substitutionary atonement for our sins? How do we know that we need a foreign and gifted and just and passive righteousness? What does the scripture say? How do we know who God is and what he's done and what he's like? How do we know what he wants, how he wants us to live? How How do we know his commands so that we can obey them? What does the scripture say? How do we know, you know, the, 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 how to do, what the purpose of life is, how to do life? What's the, the reason for living, the meaning of it all? What does Scripture say? That's the question that should follow every question for the Christian. In fact, if these other questions come up and we're not willing to ask this question, we really ought to refrain from calling ourselves Christians at all. Here we have one of the most important questions in life and in religion. How does justification work? The first thing that Paul says in response, what does the scripture say? And notice the singularity of the word scripture. He doesn't say scriptures. He he recognizes the existence of a unified, authoritative source. He's referring here, of course, to the Old Testament. Notice that he doesn't refer to what Scripture has said in the past tense either. He asks, what does it say? Present tense, it speaks. In fact, it speaks authoritatively. It's the Word of God. It speaks like God speaks. It's it's where we turn, not just for guidance, not just for some principles that we can take or leave based upon whether we like them or not. No, it's where we turn for objective, authoritative truth. I mean, you read the rest of Romans. You know, Paul, he he asks here, what does Scripture say? He doesn't then go on to say, all right, now, let's consider what Twitter has to say. (laughs) Let's see what the the blogosphere says. Let's, Let's go read some other authors and other sources. No, his appeal and ours is to be foundationally to Scripture. It's alive and active, the writer of Hebrews says. It speaks. God speaks through it to us. And it sufficiently, authoritatively, and clearly answers the question, how does justification work? 
So then, what does Scripture say? Well, the rest of verse 3 tells us, as Paul quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6. What does Scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we might be tempted to read that and say, okay, okay, Abraham believed in God. Great, I believe in God. I'm good. I mean, think about all the people that you know who believe in God, but you'd really be hesitant to call them Christians. You're getting ready to hang out with a bunch of them in a couple weeks, aren't you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you ask them, do you believe in God? Sure, they might say, of course I believe in God. <laughs> I'm from Nebraska, you know? I mean, what, what else are we going to believe? I go to church sometimes, even if I don't. I still believe in God. But listen, saving faith is not believing that God exists. Saving faith is, is not just simply believing that God is real and that he's there. You can believe that God is real. You you can believe that God is loving and that heaven is real and hell is real. You can even go to church demonstrating this superficial belief in an outward way and not be saved. See, when Abraham believed, it doesn't say that he believed in God. It says he believed God. He trusted him. Now turn in your Bibles, if you will, actually to Genesis chapter 15. It's, it's important for us to, to know um, what's going on here when Paul says, what's, what does Scripture say, right? So turn to Genesis 15 in your Bible. We're going to put it on the screen, but I really would encourage you to turn in a physical copy of God's Word so you can see it in your copy of the Scripture. It's page 10 in those pew Bibles if you need one. Genesis 15 of course, comes after Genesis 12, where you may recall God first called out to Abraham, all right, uh, or Abram, as, as he was called before God changes his name in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 12, God said to Abram, I want you to leave everything you have. <laughs> leave it all. I, I want you to leave your country, your family, your parents, your house, your future, and follow me, to quote Frozen 2, into the unknown, all right? And God makes a promise with Abraham back there in Genesis 12. It's a threefold glorious promise. He's gonna, this is the promise. He's going to make him into a great nation. All right? And by that he means lots of kids, lots of grandkids, lots of great-great-grandkids. Abraham's going to have a huge um, following after him. He, he's going to, number two, give him land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And thirdly, he's going to bless him. He's going to bless him. And through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abraham goes. He follows. Leaves it all. And some years have passed now. We're at Genesis 15. Abraham's not getting any younger, is he? He's starting to wonder, is God really going to do all that he promised? Because it's getting hard to see how. Right? And we take it up here in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Here comes the quote from Genesis, that gets quoted in Romans chapter 4. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, let me ask you, what does it mean that Abraham believed the Lord? It means he trusted him, doesn't it? He trusted God to do what otherwise seemed absolutely impossible. He trusted him to fulfill his promise. He trusted him to do what he couldn't even see and wouldn't even ever see before he died. He trusted that what God said was true, that he'd do it. See, when we read in Romans 4, just just like we read in Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God. It's not some general, man, it's not some general, vague, culturally religious belief that many Midwesterners have that God exists. No, there's been a transfer of trust. Abraham has put all his chips in in the middle of the table, right? He is all in on God. He trusts him. He believes him. And he's standing here with open hands of faith, trusting the Lord. He's not trusting himself. You see that back there in Genesis? He's looking around saying, what am I doing with my life? That's what Abraham's saying in Genesis 15. He's saying, what have I done? I don't have any kids. I left everything. What was I thinking? I left my family. I left my nation. I left my future. Walked away from it all. It's it's not working. Here I am. It's my life just one huge mistake. And here comes God. The text actually says, we should explore this sometime. The text actually says, the word of the Lord came to Abram. See that in Genesis 15? Here comes God, and he puts a spiritual arm around Abram, and he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because Abraham was afraid. That's why. I'm your shield, he says. Todd translation, I got you. Got his arm around him. I got you. Daddy's here. And he takes him outside. Several thousand years before the invention of electricity. Okay? Takes him outside. There's zero light pollution. The night sky would have been, we can't even imagine it, can we? Incredible. Takes him outside and says, Abraham's got his arm around. Abraham, look up here at these stars. <laughs> Start counting them. And I've always wondered how far God let Abraham get before he chuckled and said, okay, all right. Is Abraham, 469, 470, 471. And God's like, man, your offspring's going to be like that. Your kids and your grandkids, it's going to be just like that. And he believed him. Abraham believed him. He trusted God. Abraham staked the rest of his life, guys, on this promise. Now, listen, do you trust God like that? Think about the gospel. Think about how the gospel tells us that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life for you. He died on the cross for you. He rose again for you and he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You can't see any of that, can you? It's real, but you can't see it. I was driving with uh, Vivian uh, yesterday. We were going to the dump in my truck and and she said, uh, yeah, wouldn't it have been cool to see Jesus? Yeah, that would have been cool. 
<laughs> really, really cool. But we can't see Jesus. We didn't get to see him die on the cross. We didn't get to see any of it. But just like Abraham, the word of God comes to you. It's coming to you right now. Can you almost picture God <laughs> putting his arm around you? Walking you over to, to this cross, maybe, and, and saying to you, hey, look up here. Christ died for you. This is true. You needed him to, and he did, and now because of all that, you're forgiven. You have new life. You have a new identity. You have purpose. <laughs> he knows you've left everything to follow him. He knows you're freaking out a little bit. He knows that you're doubting a little, wondering if you've made a huge mistake with your life. And he says, don't be afraid. I've got you. Daddy's here. Do you trust him? Do you trust that Jesus died in your place for your sin? Do you trust that the only way that you can be right for, with God is through a foreign and gifted and just and passive righteousness that you can't see? Do, do you believe, not just in God in general, but do you believe God as it relates to the gospel good news? Do you believe it's true for you? Look at Romans 4. Verse 3 again, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he believed, right? He trusted and, and it was, look at this word really closely now, counted to him as righteousness. That word counted is so extremely important. It shows up eight times in our text today and I think two more times next week. Other translations have it as credited or reckoned. Or imputed. That's the old word, imputed. Abraham believed God and righteousness was imputed to him. Now put the scuba gear on for a minute. We're going deep, all right? We, we can do this. In, okay, imputation, all right? The, the best way to understand it is to contrast it with another similar word, impartation. So imputation and impartation, two words, very different meanings impartation, okay, that word impart, it means what? It means to, to give or to infuse. And so if I impart some knowledge to you, it's given to you, you are now infused with that knowledge. The knowledge is now yours. Once you weren't knowledgeable, now you are. You've been made knowledgeable. It's yours now. Irrespective of me. Okay, if, if you never see or hear from me again, you've got the knowledge. That's impartation. We tracking with that? Imputation, on the other hand, means to ascribe or credit. It's, it's a word that actually comes from the, the financial and, and legal realm. It's, it's something that is, it, it is counted, to use the word from our text, or considered yours, reckoned yours. It's not yours, it's being counted as yours. To put it more plainly in terms of what I was getting at earlier, impartation says, by faith I am made righteous. Imputation says, by faith I am counted righteous. Here's why that matters. Anyone in here still sin? Raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead. Raise your hand if you still sin. All right, raise them. Raise them up. Okay, you know. And by the way, keep them up for a second. Just go ahead and keep them up for a second. Um, but if you've had a rough week, look around the room for a minute. 
we're all in the same boat, aren't we? You know, it's like, oh, you too? Shoot, I oh, wow. Oh, every single one of us, wow. You know, and if you're, you can put them down. If your hand wasn't up, you're either asleep, a liar, deceived, or obstinate. You're like, you can't tell me to put my hand up, you know? We all still sin, Christians and non-Christians. If you think of Christ's righteousness, okay, his perfect record, his right standing, his holiness, if you think of Christ's righteousness as imparted to you, that you've been made righteous, then when you stumble, when you fall, when you sin, and the pastor asks you to raise your hand about it, (laughs) you'll question whether you've got it at all. You'll question your salvation. You'll always be insecure. You'll be riddled with spiritual anxiety, a lack of assurance, and you'll hide your sin. You'll keep it in the dark. You won't embrace the mess. Or, or, You'll be filled with spiritual pride. Demand perfection out of others. Create a whole bunch of rules that you can follow in order to prove your righteousness to yourself, justifying yourself, and you'll be devastated by the so-called moral lapses of others. That's not the biblical view of justification. The biblical view of justification is not about imparted righteousness. It's about imputed righteousness. When you see Christ's righteousness as imputed to you, counted as your own, though you stumble, Okay, though you fall in sin, he counts Christ's righteousness as yours. You're trusting, you're you're not trusting in your righteousness or your works, you're trusting in his. You're looking to that cross and and believing, (laughs) he died there for me. Which means when you sin, remember all the hands in the air? When you sin, you don't have to question your salvation. When you trust in the imputed righteousness of Jesus, you're not riddled with insecurity anymore. You're secure in Christ. You have assurance, sweet assurance we sang of. Sweet assurance of salvation. You don't have to hide your sin. You can embrace the mess. You won't be puffed up. You'll be made low. You know you didn't earn it, deserve it, or have any right to it, and yet you got it. And you'll have much more grace and be able much more easily extend forgiveness to others than yourself. Friends, this is key to understanding the difference between what the Bible calls justification and sanctification. Two really big, really important words. Justification is what we're talking about today. It's a one-time event. Justification is, is legal language. It's the, it's the opposite of condemned. We are just, not, not condemned, we are justified by faith. We believe, we believe the gospel good news and Christ's righteousness is counted to us. We are counted righteous once and for all before God in heaven by the blood of Jesus. Now comes sanctification. If justification is being counted righteous before God, sanctification is being made progressively, slowly over time, being made righteous before God. It's our growing in Christ's likeness more and more. And that's an ugly process. Can I get an amen? That is an ugly process with tips and turns and twists and tides. And though we make progress being made more and more into the likeness, the righteousness of Christ, none of us will ever fully be made righteous until Christ returns and we are finally glorified. 
not just counted righteous, but made righteous in heaven with God. And so if I were to sum all that up, it looks like this, right? Justification is about us being counted righteous before God, a one-time event that happens at conversion. Sanctification is about the progressive work of us being made righteous before God, though we never fully get there until glorification when Christ returns and we are made fully and finally righteous, renewed to perfection by God without sin in our glorified bodies. But if we mix this up, what we'll do is we will base our justification on our sanctification rather than basing our sanctification on our justification. If we mix it up, we'll look at how we're doing, always evaluating. Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I holy enough? What about these sinful thoughts? Am I worshiping correctly or enough? What about, what about my doubts? Am I loving enough? Am I doing it right? Confessing enough? We'll look to our works, see? We'll look to our sanctification to be the basis of our justification. That's completely backwards. And it's not gospel Christianity. We don't look to our sanctification to know that we're justified. We look to the cross. We believe. We trust that it's true. Even if we can't see it. That's faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. The writer of Hebrews says in 11.1. And our sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness, it all builds upon that foundation do you see why Calvin said, unless we have justification down foundationally, we'll never have a foundation? Justification is the firm foundation underneath the messy process of our sanctification. It's what holds steady when we don't. When we still sin, we are not condemned. We're justified. There's therefore no no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I want you to listen to how Richard Loveless talks about this, the, the importance of this in our Christian life, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He says, much that we have interpreted as a defect in sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Much less secure than non-Christians. You see that? Because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant bulletins that they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they're supposed to have. I mean, listen to what Loveless is saying. This is profound. He's saying, if you don't have justification down foundationally, you'll never be able to hear or bear the commands and challenges of Scripture, the shalls and shoulds. They'll crush you. You'll feel shame, which is actually conviction, the, the, the very thing God wants to use to get you to trust in Jesus instead of your works. Without the foundation, you will be pushed down into unknown depths. There's no foundation under you. You'll buckle under guilt. You'll buckle under the imperatives. But when you have the foundation, when you have the foundation underneath you, 
Now sanctification can happen. Now healthy spiritual growth can come as the commands and challenges of Scripture land on you as one who knows you're accepted, knows that you're loved, knows that you've been counted as righteous before God apart from anything that you have done, even irrespective of the degree to which you successfully rise to the challenge or obey the commands. Which means you're free. You're free. Free to live a life of faith and following after Jesus. That's what you're free for. Following after Jesus, seeking to grow in holiness, grow in obedience, messing up along the way. Heck yes. But pressing on. Knowing, trusting, none of your mess-ups, none of your missteps or sins call into question your justification, your right standing before the Lord. That was all gloriously taken care of by Jesus on the cross. No condemnation. That's the ruling. Friends, Jesus would have to be uncrucified to overturn that ruling. (laughs) Moving on, verse 4, he reminds us here that our justification is a gift. We we saw this last week, but Paul's so obsessed with it, he can't let it go, right? Verse 4, where where is it? Uh, Get back to Romans. Chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. <laughs> when you get paid by your employer, nobody says on payday, gee, boss, you shouldn't have. Why? <laughs> because wages are earned. That's why. But our justification is, is not a wage. It's not earned. We are not owed it as a due. It's a gift. Paul stresses the big idea for us again in verse 5. He says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Listen, you and I are unemployed and unemployable when it comes to finding work that would pay in the currency of righteousness. We can't earn it. That's what so much of the letter has been about up until now. Instead, we believe. Works here are contrasted, do you see it, with belief. We believe in him who justifies the ungodly. That's us. That's us. And that faith is counted, it's credited to us as righteousness. Righteousness is imputed to us. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me illustrate this idea of imputation this way. Keep with the imagery of currency and money for a second. Think about your checking account. Not too long, I might be depressing. But think about your, your, your checking account, right? Do you know about overdraft protection? You know, someone just elbowed their spouse. <laughs> we, we know, don't we? Yeah. Uh, my checking account is linked with my savings account so that anytime uh, I spend more money than I have in my checking account, what happens? I get an overdraft, right, that drafts from my savings account. You got that too? Right, so Wells Fargo just automatically, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, automatically just pulls from one account, my savings account, sticks it there in the, the checking account, and of course they charge me a $15 fee, right? Got to get that in there. Well, when you think about your checking account of righteousness, hmm, your balance is always zero. In fact, because of your sin, you perpetually carry a negative balance, All have sinned and not fall even, fall short of the glory of God, remember? But when you're justified, Christ sets up automatic transfers. He's got an ACH thing going on there. 
It's even better than that. He's got a direct and open wire to your account. Your account is linked with his. And he has infinitely deep pockets of righteousness. It's never going to run out. His righteousness is yours now. And it never runs out, and he never charges overdraft fees. That's imputed righteousness. Paul goes on. He's relentless in his passage. He says, if you don't think Abraham was a good enough example, which is ridiculous because to the Jews, Abraham was the example. But just in case Abraham, the father of Israel, wasn't enough, he says, David said the same thing. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts or again imputes righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32 here. You see that in the text? Three lines. It's a quote from Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. Now, in Hebrew poetry, like like the Psalms, there's something called parallelism. And so you get an A line and then you get a B line. The B line builds upon the A line. Sometimes you get a C line too. And if you get a C line, it's a big deal, okay? The, the, the A line says, get a load of this. The, the B line says, <laughs> here's some more. And the C line says, this is going to knock your socks off, right? Romans 4, verse 7, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. That's us. That's you and me. That's the good news. Forgiveness. Here Paul is dealing with the second aspect of justification, the forgiveness of sins. Remember our definition from earlier? Justification includes both the imputation of righteousness, but also the pardoning of our sins. Get a load of this, Paul is saying. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds (laughs) forgiven. And you think that's good. Here's some more. And whose sins are covered. Friends, your sins are not just forgiven in a forget about it kind of way. You know, they're also covered. Nothing to see here, God says, in his kindness. But there's more. This will knock your socks off, he says. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That word count right there. That's our word. It's the same word we were talking about earlier for imputation. (laughs) Look what Paul is saying. He's saying, here's how justification works. Pay attention to this. Your sin, which is really yours, is not counted as yours. You're still sinful, but you're not counted as such. God no longer imputes your sin to you. And simultaneously, Christ's righteousness, which is not yours, is counted as yours. You're not righteous, but you're counted as such. God imputes it to you. It's unbelievable. I mean, it seems impossible. Impossible, perhaps, as impossible, perhaps, as God giving Abraham an offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. And yet, when we believe, and I want to be careful here not to overemphasize our believing, lest we turn our believing into a work itself, as if I can just drum up enough belief, then I'll be good. No, by belief, again, remember, we mean trust. 
when we trust in God's promise to save, God's promise to justify, God's promise to do this, then we are placing our faith, I hope you see, not in our inability, not in our ability, but in Christ in his ability. That's how justification works. Now, one last point, and it's a good one. Anyone can get in on this. Verses 9 through 12 here in Romans 4 ask this question about circumcision, and specifically the timing of Abraham's circumcision. Was Abraham counted righteous before or after his circumcision? That's the question. And and if you know your Bible, you know it was not before, but after, just as Paul says here in verse 10. Genesis 15, we just read it, Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Circumcision, then, doesn't come into the picture until Genesis 17. It's given as a sign, it's given as a seal of righteousness, Paul says, that Abraham had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, why does that matter? Why is Paul suddenly rattling on again about circumcision? Can't he let this thing go? He's always talking about it. Well, you have to remember what Paul's whole point here in Romans is. Hasn't it been that the gospel is for everyone? Anyone can get in on this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he said back in chapter 1, verse 16. For it is the power of God for salvation for who? Say it out loud. For who? All, everyone, yes, thank you, everyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek, he has said. You see, Paul here is defending his thesis that the Gentiles can be joined with the Jews as God's people, children of Abraham. And we don't get all the way in. We're not going to go all the way in the weeds here. We'll be here for another hour, right? But I want to say that Paul makes his case here based on the fact that Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. That Abraham is therefore the father of all who believe without circumcision, the Gentiles. Okay, that's verse 11. That's also us. So they can get in on this. So we can get in on this. Additionally, he says, he's the father of the circumcised, the Jews, so long as they're not merely circumcised, but also have faith and walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. That is complicated. (laughs) You might want to go read that this afternoon and slow down with it a little bit. But it is a complicated but very important way of saying circumcision is not the main issue here. No one is counted as righteous before God because they've got some foreskin removed. No one is counted righteous before God because of their national heritage. And therefore, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul clarifies this even more in Galatians 3 where he says on the same topic, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here comes the glorious part. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It doesn't matter who you are, he says. Jew or Greek? Raised in a Christian home all your life with Christian parents and grandparents or figuring this all out on your own. 
slave or free, rich or poor, powerful or powerless, male or female, voting Republican or voting Democrat. Your age doesn't factor in when it comes to salvation. Your race, your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your track record doesn't matter. Your sexual past doesn't matter. Your ethical past doesn't matter. He justifies the ungodly, verse 5. He knows your sin. But in Christ, he forgives them all, covers them all, and doesn't count them as yours anymore. And instead, he counts Christ's righteousness as yours. It's how justification works. It's what it means, in this passage anyway, to be, to be blessed. Blessed. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This, I hope you see, actually hearkens us all the way back to Genesis 12 and the initial promise that was made to Abraham. Sure, there is the promise of him becoming a great nation, possessing a great land, but don't forget the last part. Through you, God said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. As Abraham's offspring, that's us, as Abraham's offspring heirs to the promise, and with Romans chapter 4 squarely in our minds, we know that blessing means far more now than just being a blessing with our good deeds. But even more importantly, with our good news. The gospel good news that is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Here we see the glorious theme of justification closely bound up with God's covenant promise to the whole world. Or in short, anyone can get in on this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can turn to it and that it explains difficult and complicated things for our finite minds to understand. Thank you for the beautiful truth of justification. Help us to stand confident upon it as our foundation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.